here as I read God's word. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in hand and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. That's what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you want, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men were tre- treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. And, when his mother, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Alkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord, so they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people, the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the Father's voice, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, uh, subjected to Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all of the tribes of Israel to be my priest and to go up to my altar to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering from the people of Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise you that your house and the house of your father I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me. But now declares the Lord, far be it from me, that those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me I will lightly esteem. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then, in distress, you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword. 
And this shall come upon your own two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and this shall be a sign to you, both of them shall die on the same day. Verse 35, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come and implore him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Let's pray. Lord, I look to you as again we open up a passage of scripture that has been there for so many years, but we know that every passage of scripture is not accidental. Every part of your word is profitable. It is given for a reason. And so God, we don't ever want to gloss over anything that you've given us. Lord, we pray that as we take these ancient words and the way that you interacted with Eli and his sons in this situation, would ask God that you would take this, these truths and these realities and impress them upon us today that we would understand their practical implications even upon the way that we act and live and think today because you are God over all time. At no point does your strength weaken or wane. You are eternal, all-glorious, all-powerful. And God, we want to hear from your word today and bring our hearts and minds into subjection to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we take up this section of 1 Samuel, we've already uh, looked at the beginning of it where uh, Elkanah and Hannah had come on their yearly journey to the place Shiloh. That's where they were having the tabernacle in those days before Jerusalem was established, before a temple. It was still like a tent. And they were coming there. And remember, Hannah had cried out to the Lord because she had no children, was afflicted by her rival wife, Elkanah having two wives and uh, pled to the Lord and we saw that God answered her prayer and gave her a son and that son was Samuel and then Samuel was given to the temple there uh, to that tabernacle in Shiloh where he would be raised by the priest in the beginning of chapter 2 we had this prayer as Hannah really poured out her heart before God and, and, and we can see even in this unfolding part of the chapter some of the historical practical realities it tells us there in verse 18 and following that every year when again the family would travel back there she would make a little robe to deliver to her son her son that she hadn't really seen since the previous year and give him that robe and spend those few days of the sacrificing and it with her son and enjoying and then going back to their place Rama. It's also interesting to note that, it, that after having such disappointment and discouragement for many years, that suddenly as they began to go and, and give this little robe to, robe to Samuel and pray before God and just so thankful for what God had given, Eli would pronounce a blessing upon them each time. May God grant you more children for the petition that you gave. And she would go back and have a son and have a son and have a daughter. And God granted a, a, a wonderful overflow in that area. 
But the majority of the rest of this chapter does not focus on Samuel. And it doesn't focus on Elkanah and Hannah. It doesn't focus on the, on the more positive characters and characteristics. It takes a decidedly negative slant. What, it, what, it, what we be, begin to see here in this passage is that they are, they are stated as individuals. Uh, uh, we look at worthlessness, warnings, and worthiness. And I want you to begin to see something of uh, his sons. Eli raised his sons. So Eli being the priest really the high priest and the descendant. So he is to be the godly man in the kingdom. He's to be that guy who does it right and is a good example. Now sadly, we live in a, law, a world in which too many people have seen the ones who are supposed to be the godly man, the godly example, not do that and fall publicly and shamefully and bring shame on really the the name of Christ bring confusion and doubt what kind of faith is this when he still lives in those ways well here in this circumstance Eli is supposed to do what's right and he's supposed to be a good example he is a father of sons his sons are being trained up in the service together with him to be those ministers in the temple the the eldest ones being Hophni and Phinehas, there's some doubt as to whether there were more or not. If the scripture does not tell us if there are more or not, it doesn't matter. All we need to know is what it actually says. And these two sons, this is how the scripture des describes them. Now, if you have the old King James here, you'll see that it does not say worthless men. It says sons of Belial, which is a confusing statement for sure. It says the sons, verse 12, now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. I mean, that is the literal Hebrew transliteration there. They, they are the, the, the modern translations say they were worthless men. Now, probably something that would be helpful is that in this beautiful and poetic language, the phrase sons of Belial, Belial wasn't a person, wasn't a, a particular human being, wasn't even necessarily a false god, because it would be a very strange name for a false god, since it, 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 it consists of really two words there, the first part of it being uh, belly, which is not your stomach, but, but it means without. And then Yaal, which means worth, value. And so basically, they, were, they are sons of that which is without value. Ultimately, a son should bear, generally, likeness and similarity to his father. Might have a general appearance, uh, or, or something about his demeanor, something about his way of speaking. You can sometimes tell. I mean, when my son was young and, and, and studying uh, at a school over in an island in, in the Indian Ocean called Mauritius, I was often traveling back and forth to India, and he had just entered a new class, and his, Sunday, his, his uh, kindergarten teacher would talk to him, after a few months of ministry in India, I was able to come over and meet the teacher for the first time. And after a five-minute conversation, she said, now I know why Andrew talks the way he talks. 
which I took as a compliment. <laughs> I hope, I don't really know, but the, there is a, a, just a distinctiveness, a family vocabulary, a family phrasing, uh, uh, just a way that, uh, a culture that happens in a close-knit community that emerges. And so the sons of Eli should be like him. And ultimately, the children of Israel, being seeing themselves in a sense as sons of God, should have been like God. But rather, the phrase here is they are sons of worthlessness, recklessness, wickedness. Because this word is actually translated in a couple different ways. The, the way that the Greek translation translated this was lawlessness or witless. <laughs> Uh, the same word is uh, uh, in a number of different places. And, and one of the interesting places we do see this word in the New Testament come up is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, where it says, Do not be unequally yoked don't be, with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light and darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does the believer share with an unbeliever? It's stated as opposites. Believer, unbeliever, righteous, unrighteous. Christ, absolute righteousness, absolute glory, absolute perfection, absolute worth with Belial. Absolute nothing. The eternal Son of God with that which just passes away. And so... The first thing we see in here is this, this description of worthless persons or worthless men. Concerning these worthless men, here's the most frightening thing. The very first description of them in verse 12. The sons of Eli were worthless men's, men. They did not know the Lord. I mean, that's, that's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? They did, so they're worthless just because they don't know the Lord? Well, everything that, is, that exists is passing away. Everything is temporary. There is no one who, has, who lived 200 years ago that you can go and meet them this afternoon. It simply can't happen because everyone comes and goes. Governments come and go. Well, political parties at times come and go. The ideologies they hold to come and go. We live in such a transitional, transitory world where so much is coming and going. But the things of God and the person of God is unchanging. He does not ever change. There's no shadow, there's no shifting. And everything that we do, we build a house. And houses burned down. When my uh, daughter was going out to, to study, uh, last year she went for the first time out to study in Malibu, where she's studying at Pepperdine. And I just remember when I was growing up, all the time when we would travel that Pacific Coast Highway, loved to look up and see on the corner of one of this, the hills, someone had literally built themselves a castle. Which was, you know, you drive by and you see a castle on a hill. 
looks pretty amazing and you and you picture all that that would be like came by a few years back driving that same road thinking I'm going to show the castle to my children they'll see the castle I always saw when I was growing up castle was not there it had burned down in one of the fires that often ravages those Southern California mountains. It was gone. That, that, that beautiful multi-million dollar investment, gone. And that's the way everything ultimately ends up being. If you do not, everything that is apart from God doesn't abide. Wherever there is, without faith, you cannot please God. That's what the scriptures say. And so that's why they did not know God meant everything that they would try to do would be worthless, would be valueless. It's interesting. The scripture actually talks about the, the deeds of men. According to how we live, we know believers and unbelievers and tre- or those that acknowledge they're not Christian and those who claim to be Christian and we at times will see the overtly non-Christian is a better guy, a nicer guy, and the guy who's claiming to be a Christian, not so much. And so relatively, we we see these different things. Now, that should not ultimately be. I cannot say uh, what the real state of a person's heart is, but all of our righteousness, all of our good deeds, Isaiah tells us, the best that a man does is considered before the absolute perfections of God like filthy rags. Stinking, filthy rags. And so the idea would would be this. If you would think to draw near to the king of glory, if someone was to come in, in the old days of kingdoms and arrive and say, I want to meet the king, they would often come bearing gifts many gifts, beautiful gifts and trinkets that they would bring along and show and display as an evidence of love and show. Well, if someone was to come and bring barrels full of stinking, dirty rags and say, here's what I brought you, king. How do you think that would be looked upon? In those days... It could have potentially been a off with his head. Get rid of that fellow. How dare you do that? Because everything that we do, even the best we do, oftentimes they are so tainted with our own desires. They, they did this helpful thing, helped a person in need. Why'd they do it? It made them feel good. And so even our good deeds can be tinged with with selfishness and self-serving. Apart from faith, we cannot please God. These men were worthless men because they did not know the Lord. All that they were supposed to do, they didn't do it right because they did not know the Lord. And even if occasionally they did something right, it wasn't acceptable because it wasn't an act of faith. But with regard to them, we, you begin to see in verse 13, they, uh, the custom of the priests with the people. So here's the first part. 
the custom of the priest with the people. This is what they customarily did. This was their habit. The priests weren't supposed to have customs. The priests were given explicit instructions. Do like this, and do like this, and do like this. So for them to have customs on the other side, what does that tell you? They didn't know the Lord. They didn't know his way of instruction. And so they did it their way. What's interesting is the scriptures tell us, and I'll just share quickly with you out of Deuteronomy 18.3, this shall be the priest due from the people. Those who offer a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. All right, one more in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 31. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons, verse 32, and the right thigh you shall give to the priests as a contribution. Okay, so as the priests worked there and they, they didn't have their fields and they didn't have their animals, they would eat from the benefit of what people would bring them. That would make sense. And so the scriptures had specifically given, all right, this is what they get. They get the thigh, they get the shoulder, they get the two cheeks, they get the stomach. Uh, This is what, uh, and they get the breast. This is what they are to get. It's, It's very simple. It's wonderful provision, abundant provision for them. But here's what these men did. We don't just want that. We kind of want what we want. And so they they turned it into some sort of carnival-like game where they would take it, they would, wherever the the meat was being boiled, they would come in and like a grab bag or a blind uh, blind fishing game, they would just stick the the three-pronged fork in and pull it out and whatever was on there, they were taking that. Now, according to God's instruction, they weren't entitled to any part they wanted. They were entitled to particular parts. But they developed their own custom. We will simply do it the way that we want to do it. Uh, Part of it, it's while it was still boiling or while it was still seething, and so they'd want to take it out partially boiled so that then they could maybe add some herbs and spices, put it on an open fire, and make it more delicious and delightful. Because if it went through the normal pattern, we know a better way. We know a way of doing it that we will enjoy more. Do people still act like that? Do churches still act like that? I know that these are the things that are pleasing to God. I know that this is what he says God, uh, we should be about. This is what, these are the central focuses of what a local church should be doing. But we know a way that would make it more fun. We know a way that would make it more exciting. We know a way, we know nothing. <laughs> Uh, what, what we think we know ends up being worthless because the whole point of gathering together and the whole point of worship is to please God. Somehow we've, some, we've missed that to an extent. We've thought that the coming together is about pleasing ourselves. Well, do I like this church? I don't know. It's like, well, 
is that what's on our heart and mind or do we come together and say we come because God is God he is worthy of our worship and I'm coming to hear his word to hear what it tells me to learn his instruction to sing praises to him I'm coming to worship God well they developed customs that were completely outside of what the scripture instructed them not only did it, did they develop first of all customs but that developing their own customs ended up leading ultimately in the mind of God to contempt not just doing it their way someone might think well just doing it our way is not a big deal well look what it says in verse 15 moreover before the fat was burned and I already read to you in Leviticus 7:31 that the first thing was that the fat was supposed to be burned before the fat was burned, the priest would come and say to the man sacrificing, give me meat for the priest to roast. You know, it's interesting phrasing. It's not humble and gracious phrasing there, right? If someone comes up to you, meets you walking on the street, give me meat. You know, that, you, you hold up a sign at a street to give me meat. It's like, wait, that's not a, that's not a, I'm in need, please help me. That's, how, that's demanding, that's rude, that's cheap. Well, that's what these men had begin to, begun to think of themselves in a sense, no longer as those who serve God in that place, but the people, instead of them coming for God, in order to get to God, they've got to go through me. They began to see themselves, instead of servants of God, as somehow priorities and powerful over the people looking down at them, making demands of them. Demands that some of them might have said, but God's word said that we have to burn the fat first. And if anybody did respond that way, the scripture says here, they would then take it by force. I mean, this is completely wrong. And it, so it begins, and sin often begins like that. Just little few things here and there. I'm going to start doing things my way. It's going to start not worrying, not ask myself, what would God have me do? What is pleasing to God in this situation? But I'm going to just say, what do I want? What would I like at this time? And it starts like that, thinking of ourselves first and not living in light of who God is. And before long, all right, I know God says no to this, but I want it anyways. You don't want me to have it, but I want it. And so there's, there's a growing obstinance such that it says this in verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. I want to note this for you. What they did was very great Their sin was very great in the sight of the Lord. That's not a small thing. Now, strangely enough, because of their position as priests, the people would just go ahead and give in. They'd just go ahead and do it. And so generally the people would come and go and not necessarily think, man, these priests are wicked, these priests are bad. They, what they were doing, they may not have felt like it was bad in their sight. It had, to, to some extent, had become a custom of theirs so that the people were generally accepting of it. But you know what? Even if I'm okay with it, and even if people in general start to be okay with it, 
If it's not right in the sight of God, it's not right. Society can't change things. What is right and wrong, what is good and bad, what is sin and not sin, society can't pass laws to change what is good and bad and right and wrong, and it, it, it can't do that. God alone tells us what is right and pleasing in his sight and what is wrong. And even if governments were to step in and say, no, we say these things, these practices, these immoralities, these actions, these are right. If God says they're wrong, they remain wrong. Even if the world uh, looked, they'll look at us and say, you're old-fashioned. And we've talked about this in, in weeks before. What do you mean old-fashioned? All the sins that are going on in the world around us, these are sins that have been going on way back in the days of the Scripture. That's why they're addressed in the New Testament. That's why they're addressed in the Old Testament. That's why issues of, of, of various forms of perversion and immorality are addressed in the Old Covenant Law. They're addressed before the Old Covenant Law as God rains down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah for evil. I mean, the, it's not old-fashioned. People like to, like to uh, speak negatively of, of Christians as being old-fashioned, not realizing the very sins that they're trying to bring into fashion are horribly old-fashioned sins. Miserably ancient evils. Nothing new. It's just when a society began to get overwhelmed by those things in the past, God would wipe them out. And so their custom turned to contempt and even further, really, to corruption. Look what it says if we go down just a little bit to verse 22. Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing. And how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. I mean, they've gone further. They, they slowly started not following the rules and doing what they wanted. Then began, that went further and they began to get demanding and selfish, self-serving and self-centered. Making the people give them what they want. And then they went even further and began to take advantage of the young ladies who would be working and serving in the courtyard area uh, the doorway area entrance to the tabernacle. Absolute corruption. You know, and that's how sin often is, isn't it? Because slowly, slowly, we accept a little bit more. I'm only going to do this on weekends. I'm only going to do this once a month. Pe people think like that. It's like, this isn't my pattern. It is your, it's your monthly pattern. <laughs> Okay, it's still a pattern. It's still not right and not healthy. And, and it, it just on and on and increasing and increasing. And so um, the challenge that you face here is uh, Eli now hears these things. Now listen, what's, what's the, we move from the worthless persons to what I have to call here the worthless parent or the worthless men to the worthless mentor, because Eli did not step up when he should have. Listen to what it says in verse 22. It says, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing 
and how they were laying with these women. And verse 23, and he said to them, why do you do such things? Really, Eli? You've, you've allowed them to kind of go their own way. You've allowed them to, to be demanding and selfish and self-centered. But now only when the bad reputation is starting to spread. Now in the, in the last moment you're going to say, guys, this isn't right. And the worst part is, as, as you look at it, he, he's, he's really emphasizing, guys, it's not right. People are talking about it. I'm here to tell you this. It's wrong even if people aren't talking about it. It's wrong even if nobody knows about it. We've talked about this before also. There are no secret sins. I mean, they can be secret from even those closest to you, but none of them are secret to God. <laughs> so th there's, but why is Eli so concerned now that the reputation is starting to affect uh, the people who come? Eli waited till he was very old. He should have dealt with this much, much sooner. And so then even as he deals with them, they do not listen. Listen, the scripture tells us this in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. It's a, it's a familiar phrase to us. It, it, the second half of that verse says this, everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. And from him whom they've entrusted much, they will demand much. What's the phrase? We know it. To whom much is given, much is required. Eli uniquely and especially had a privileged prominent position where he would be seen among the people and he was to represent to them and declare to them God's word and he was to, to help them fulfill those Old Testament practices by which they would worship God and it would symbolize their need for cleansing, their need for forgiveness, their need for grace and instead he did not do that. And so God addresses him really beginning in verse 27. And he starts by addressing him with some rhetorical questions. He, he does so also by sending to him. It says in verse 27, And there came a man of God to Eli. Now, that's it. now this is what's beautiful about it. We don't know who this guy was. There are so many of these wonderful occasions in the Old Testament where it says, a man of God came. Well, who was he? Don't know. What was his name? Don't know. Where did he live? Still don't know. What did he do? Well, that I know, at least in part. He did what God would have him do. <laughs> he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But we can't like put him on a list of our champions. We can't name ministry groups after him. No, we can't. And it's fine. Because the, the whole point of all of these accounts isn't so that David becomes our hero or Solomon becomes our hero. It isn't that men become our heroes. We see God's use and God's work and God's use in their life. But God is the one who's exalted above all. Christ is the preeminent one to whom we look. Get your eyes off of David and Solomon. Uh, 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 greater wisdom than Solomon has come when Christ has come. 
To whom much is given, much is required. And he begins by asking him some rhetorical questions. And in verse 27 and, and 28, he basically says, uh, goes, goes back historically. You're in this position because you've kind of inherited it. I'm the one who chose your father. Everybody was there. All the different families in Egypt were there. Please know this. While they were there in captivity, while they were there as slaves, there was nothing that said God has to choose the tribe of Levi to be the priestly tribe. There was nothing that said among the tribes of Levi, God has to choose Aaron to be the high priest. There's never anything that says God has to except his own perfect wisdom and character. Nothing. And so he says, didn't I choose your fathers? Didn't I choose your family? Do you not understand the position you're in, that privileged place, whatever you're at, it's because I gave that to you. I brought you there. Do you not understand the responsibility that you're under? And I promised that to them. And did I not, did I not, to which those answers would be, yes, you did, Lord. And did you, yes, you did, Lord. And so he follows up those rhetorical questions with really what I would call a, a description of reprehensible actions. Look at verse 29. Why then did you scorn my sacrifices? Now the word scorn there is, is, a, is, a, is a rich Hebrew word. Rich in the sense that it's picturesque. The literal phrasing there is, why do you kick at my sacrifices? That's disdainful, right? What's interesting is there is, a, there is an old Jewish phrasing and figure of speech that goes with these kinds of things that among uh, most of us generally don't raise cattle in the same manner in which they did, but this was, this was the ancient idea among the Hebrews. Uh, the, the cow that's kind of hungry, when you bring food out there, he comes, he's happy, he, he gets after the food, and, and he's wonderfully pleased with it. The fat cow, the well-fed cow, you come out there and, and you're, putting that, you're putting that food in that place, he's kicking at you. He doesn't care for you. He doesn't feel like he needs you. And so th that, was the, that was the idea, which is why the newer translations say scorn at. It's a despising, a disparaging, a looking down. Why do you, now the yous in this passage are, are in the plural. So it's him and his sons. Wait, I thought his sons were doing all of these things. Well, his sons were the ones thrusting in the fork. His sons were the ones demanding the delicious cuts of meat to roast. But he knew it. And he allowed it. And here's one of the reasons it seems he allowed it. I like the roast. This is good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, that... When they bring that food, it is nice. You'll actually see in chapter 3, when poor Eli meets his demise, it tells us that Eli had become a very large and heavy fellow. He had really feasted himself 
on the benefits that his sons would bring. He knew about it, and he wasn't necessarily actively putting his hand in the cauldron, but, well, I know they're doing it, and I'm benefiting from it, but my hands are clean. Is that right? Oh, poor Eli says, why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded? Again, reminding of the commands for my dwelling. And listen, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people of Israel. Eli is sitting there probably somewhere in a rather you know, large manner, taking up the majority of whatever seat he's sitting on. And this man of God is talking to him and, and saying, you have fattened yourself on the Lord's offering. He's sitting there with no excuse at all. It, 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 I mean, the evidence that he had taken advantage is all over him, plain for the eye to see. He has to sit there and realize, see, because you know what you did? You scorned my sacrifices. You put your own sons before me. You knew they were doing wrong, but your responsibility is to serve me. You let them carry on. It benefited them. They liked it. It benefited you. You let their happiness, their delight, their wants be more important than my commands. It cannot be. What's interesting is if you take that and you move to the, to the New Testament, in Matthew 10, verse 37, the scriptures will even say this. Whoever loves father, mother, more than me, Jesus says, is not worthy of me. Then he's not done. He says, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Oh, that is strong language. So are you saying that we are supposed to love God, indeed Christ, more than anything and anyone else? Yes. Yes, indeed. We are. And, and the way we actually show love to our children is by telling them, no, son, you cannot do this because this is not pleasing to God. No, daughter, you cannot do this. No, Wife, you cannot do this. Whatever it be, the, by, by showing that God comes first. He let his sons carry on. He neglected it. It will tell in a few chapters, he did not restrain them. Neglectful parenting. Letting it go. Not, re, not reminding them, you and I live before God. Every day and every deed, we answer to God. This isn't my world or our world or my life or our lives. This is God's world. Every day is a day that he has given to me. Will tomorrow come? I don't know. I mean, with much uncertainty. I mean, uh, we, we look at even the uncertain things that, that go on around us from day to day. Uh, I remember a, a few months ago uh, beginning to, to read about Marshall and this general community and, having, and, and reading, the, looking at crime statistics and other things. And up until that point, 
Uh, there had been zero murders that had taken place in this entire city all year. But now, in the last month, there were two. And last Sunday, right across the street, there was one. Rose up on that morning thinking, a day like any other day. Sunday, getting ready for a week like any other week. That man did not know that that night he would be in the hospital with a gunshot wound. He did not know that that would be the last moment. Every day is a day that is allotted to us by God. This world, it's not a game. It's not to be trifled with. It's not to be taken lightly. We all answer to God. And these are the reprehensible actions that they, uh, that they behaved with. And then he speaks to them. Uh, he speaks, God then speaks of the re resulting devastation. As a result of that, you're done. Your, your high priestliness is done. Your sons are done. Now what's, what's strange enough, he says, among your house, some are going to live. But there's never going to be a man who lives to old age. Every one of them is going to die a tragic early death. And their whole lives are going to be filled with difficulty. You think, wow, that is harsh. That is a strict punishment that God is meeting out on Eli and his descendants. Brothers and sisters, I, I have to tell you, that's not even close to the punishment for sin that is the lake of fire. Not even close. For all of those who do not by grace come to faith in Jesus Christ. To, to understand that this is the word of God and there is no other. This reveals to us the true God and there is no other. It reveals to us in Christ, in his life, in his death and resurrection, in, the, the, in his person and being, the only salvation. That's the way that it is. This, this is not a game. I, I, I so often think that people think that what church they join, what religion they join, it's just, it's just a free choice, it's just a game. It's not. It's a matter of right and wrong. It truly is a matter of life and death. And not just life and death in the days of this existence, but eternal destinies. It's not a small thing. And then further, so the devastation, they would lose all that out. And it, so we go, went from the worthless person to the worthless parent to thankfully, this passage ends on a positive note, the worthy priest. Listen to what it says in verse 35. It says this, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Here's the difference. You're unfaithful. I'm going to raise up a faithful one. What, what defines this faithful one? He shall do according to all that is in my heart and my mind. Oh, wow. Now... Though this 
the, the, the scholars and the theologians love to jump on this and they love to trace it out. And some says, well, I think he's talking about Samuel. Others say, no, I think he's talking about Zadok, who's going to be a priest in, in the Davidic temple that comes about and all of those kinds of things. And there could and indeed may be some historic characters that flow out of this prophecy that bear some similarity. But I would dare say, none have ever been faithful to perfection. None have ever done all that is in the heart of God, save one. Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is, in, even in the flow and the phrasing of this passage, it even said this in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature, in favor with the Lord, and in favor with man. Does that kind of phrasing jump out with you? Grew in favor with God, in favor with men. Where do we see that kind of phrasing? In the New Testament, again, when Jesus is growing up, he grew in favor with God and in favor with men. God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do all what is in my heart, and I will build him a sure house. This worthy man will be raised up by God. Indeed, if we look about Jesus, Jesus was does not only uh, raised up by God in, in, a, in a historic, earthly, child-rearing sense, but in, a, in an extraordinary sense. He died, buried, three days. And what happened after three days? He rose from the dead. And not only was he rose from the dead to earth, he then what? Rose and ascended to the right hand of God. And here's a, here's a beautiful reality. The same way that he ascended, he will come again. So all of this unfolds. Raised by God, faithful to God, established for God. Even look back with me briefly in verse 25 because here's, here's the concern that Eli even shares with his son. Look, if you, by, by abusing these sacrifices, you're not just doing wrong to these people. If you do wrong between people and people, then God can intervene for you. But here's the great fear. Look what it says in verse 25. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? I mean, the, there, there is the, a sense of hopelessness there. If someone sins against God, and what do we find out? Every sin is ultimately against God. When Joseph was being tempted by Potiphar's wife to be unfaithful. He didn't say, I cannot do this sin against Potiphar. He said, I cannot do this sin against my God. Because every disobedience, every sin is ultimately against God. And so if we sin against God, who can intercede for them? And this is even in the Old Testament, where they, where they would look around and generally their first thought would have been, well, the, the priest right wait so is there no one so is there no one to intercede and that would have been the reality because no man stands meeting the righteous requirements of God no man is a faithful priest in the fullness of that sense to be our advocate before, before the Father, to be our, our intercessor. There's no one who, who can make up that difference and stand between us and Him. No man, except what? 
Jesus was our great high priest and was in all senses tempted like we are yet without sin. And so what's beautiful here is as, these, as Eli says these statements to his sons, if you sin against God, who is there to intercede for you? Even the priest didn't have the answer. Even the priest's sons didn't have the answer. In, in a certain sense, throughout the Old Testament, the, 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 the full reality of that answer was unknown until it was made known to us in Christ. And so we, we live in the world, and, and, and this passage gives us these warnings. There's worthlessness. We see the worthless person and the worthless parent just caught up in customs, caught up in practices and doing their own desires, not realizing that as they live for themselves, it's actually living in contempt for God. And customs and contempt lead just deeper and deeper into corruption. That's just the way that it is. And with regard to parenting and with regard to our relationships with another, don't wink lightly at sin. It seems to start small. It seems insignificant. Don't consider children more important don't consider personal comfort more important don't consider delight and enjoyment more important well i'm going to enjoy this now because tomorrow i know if i confess my sin he will forgive it that is wrong way of thinking but in all of this worthlessness in all of these warnings we are reminded that there is one who is worthy there is Jesus Christ. That because of his righteous life, because of his death and resurrection, there is forgiveness of sin to all who believe in him. There is hope. There is deliverance. Not only uh, delivered from the final judgment, but delivered from the power of sin even today. I don't have to continue to walk corruptly. I don't have to continue to give in to temptation. There is strength. There is hope. There is power in the work of the cross that has accomplished in my life. And so as, as we consider he who alone is the worthy one, he who alone is the worthy priest, let me pray and then we're going to step forward and uh, participate together in the Lord's Supper. Let me pray. Lord, as we uh, just pray now, Lord, there is a real sense in which it is just so easy to live in this world just towards an eye to what we want and an eye to what we like. It's even easy for us to kind of get caught up in what have become the prevailing customs and patterns of this world and not realizing the corruption that it ultimately leads to. God, we need um, your word to continue to make clear to us both in the world around us and even in the practices within ourselves, those things that are, that are not right in your eyes. Lord, we pray that in the lives of those that we're close to, that we would esteem you enough and truly love them enough uh, to not let them just go after their own hearts and go after their own way. Lord, we pray, pray for all the parents who are here that you would grant them uh, the grace and patience and perseverance and faithfulness to discipline their children, not to look lightly on sin. Lord, help us not to give in to those ideas of boys will be boys and children will be children, but to really seek to 
instruct them and raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Lord, and we thank you for Jesus Christ because none of us in ourselves is faithful. All of us have fallen and stumbled and seriously sinned in many ways. And we thank you for the hope and forgiveness that is in Christ. We thank you for the, we thank you, God, that these aren't merely things we believe, but that they are true. They are eternal realities that you've revealed to us in your word. Thank you for making them known to us, not only through your word, but making them known to our hearts and minds by granting us faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.